Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Will the government act to help Britons escape expensive legacy pension schemes? How to manage your finances if you don't have internet access? And why the PPI compensation bandwagon still has further to run? Welcome to the Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo, hello, and James Pickford, hello. Plus, a special studio guest, Judith Donovan of the Keep Me Posted campaign. Hello. The legislation that will allow savers unrestricted access to their pensions once they reach the age of 55 continues to wend its way through Parliament. This week, the pensions bill had its second reading with a debate in a near-empty House of Commons. One of the emerging issues with pension freedoms is whether savers in older pension schemes will be able to get at their money without triggering substantial exit penalties. Exit fees were a common feature of personal pension plans in particular and other forms of investment products in the 1980s and 90s. They can be as high as 20% of the value of the fund. The government says it doesn't think exit fees are a big problem, but is nevertheless looking into whether action is required. Joe Cumbo has more details. Joe, is this a big problem or not? Ministers seem to be playing it down, but some consumer groups are very concerned about it. Yes, this week Steve Webb, the pensions minister, came under renewed pressure from the opposition to explain what he's going to do to protect savers trying to access their cash to take advantage of the new freedoms that come into uh, effect from April next year. But the pensions minister insisted that the number of schemes with exit fees was very much in the minority and he referred to a 2013 survey by his department that found that more than five in six trust-based schemes and nine out of ten employers with contract-based schemes had no exit fees. So the message from him was that um, let's not exaggerate the scale of the problem. It's not a big problem. But that wasn't telling the full story. That survey was only referring to workplace-based pension schemes, not personal pensions, where we know where exit penalties are far more prevalent. What sort of impact can exit penalties have on the fund? 
Exit penalties were um, largely features of schemes that were set up pre-2001. On the schemes that still have these exit penalties, the charge may take off 5 to 15% of your total fund. Now, that has been estimated as the typical sort of penalty that you might get. But the actual penalty, indeed, there is one on, on your policy, will depend on when you joined your scheme retirement age and how early you decide or you want to leave the scheme. And how would you know if your fund was liable to an exit penalty? Presumably all this is buried in the small print. If you've got a personal pension, it will be in your contract. It it will be explicit. Either they're there or they're not. Where it gets a little bit greyer is in the workplace pension market because your employer, not you, signed the contract on your behalf. You wouldn't have known whether exit penalties were agreed to on your behalf. That would have been your employer. Now, I think the lingering issue here which might become more of a problem is when people in workplace pensions want to exercise their their new right to take their money out of uh, their their policy early than the scheme retirement age and find that their pension provider might penalise them or impose an exit penalty where the contract might have been silent on the issue of penalties. They might not say anything explicit about there being a penalty, but there could be something in the contract, we don't know, which gives the pension provider the the right to change terms at a later date. So it's a bit of a jack-in-the-box. That is a concern for consumer campaigners. Presumably, if this was written into the contract and and you as the saver signed the paperwork, it's very difficult then for the government to sort of turn around 20 years later and say, oh, well, we've introduced these new pension freedoms and we'd like to sort of rip up that contract and and not not impose penalties. It is very difficult to get anyone to rip up a contract because that will cause a big precedent, wouldn't it? And that would be uh, destabilising for the insurance industry. And indeed, what the um, minister said this week is that we're not overwriting the rules of existing schemes, But what the intention would be to do at the moment is talk to industry to ensure that as many people as possible can access their cash because there are many providers at the moment who aren't giving um, uh, individuals the option from April to access their cash flexibly. In effect, they'll be stuck. So if they want to take advantage of the new rules, they will have to transfer, therefore potentially invoking an exit penalty. So if those providers can be encouraged to offer more flexibility within their existing suite of products. That might be a way around the problem of exit penalties for for some savers. But there is also the second problem of the workplace pension schemes where contracts might be silent on exit penalties and there is a concern that they might be triggered. Pressure from consumer groups for insurers to perhaps take a hit on those exit penalties instead of levying them to to hold back from levying them uh, is continuing. One to keep an eye on. Thank you very much, Joe. And there's more on the Great Pension Debate on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, why it could still be worth your while claiming compensation for PPI mis-selling. But first, how do you manage your finances if you don't have access to the internet? If you're listening to this podcast, having downloaded it from ft.com or from iTunes, then it's probably not something you'll be too concerned about. But you may have a parent or a relative who's far less web-savvy. According to the Office for National Statistics, over 6 million people in the UK have never used the internet, and almost two-fifths of elderly people have no online access. 
Even those who are connected might have reservations about security or be nervous about making online transactions involving substantial amounts of money. Do they miss out on the best deals? Unequivocally, yes. Research from the Keep Me Posted campaign suggests that offline consumers pay around £440 more each year for household goods and services. But all is not lost. Some companies do make an effort to treat online and offline users equally and not charge non-internet users substantially higher prices. Judith Donovan, the chair of the Keep Me Posted campaign, is here to tell us more. Judith, the web has been with us now for well over 10 years, and yet there are still millions of people who don't use it. What's stopping them? A variety of things. For some people, they actually don't have it. There are parts of this country that are very deeply rural. I live in the Yorkshire Dales, and I have a very bad broadband connection, but further in the Yorkshire Dales, there is no connection at all. Uh, We have people with quite a wide variety of disabilities who find it virtually impossible to work with the internet, either, for example, because they haven't got much mobility in their hands or a range of visual impairment conditions where the, the, the glare from the screen means that they actually can't see the information on it. There's an issue of affordability. Uh, the internet is not free. Uh, there are people um, on low wages, uh, un- unemployed, who can't afford it. And whilst there are publicly available in computers in such as libraries, the advice is always don't do your money management on them. Don't put your own personal uh, password into anything that is um, can be accessed by other people. It's very simple to presume it's the old people and when they die, life will be fine. It's far more complicated than that. Do lots of the people who may not have uh, online access at home have friends or relatives who can act as sort of proxy internet users on their behalf? I suppose some people could through familial connections. I think friends would be very difficult, though, because you're in this password-protected scenario, and I think that would be rather tricky. I mean, amongst our supporters, we have some welfare groups like um, the Royal Agricultural Benevolent Institute who try and help farmers who are in financial trouble, and they say it's becoming really difficult now because in the old days when it was paper, they could get a letter of permission to talk to somebody like DWP, but they can't go on that farmer's computer and be given his password because that's a complete data protection breach. Looking at financial services particularly, which are the main problems faced by consumers if they are not online or not familiar with the internet? Money management is a big issue. I mean, over half the consumers we've spoken to say they will be frightened of missing paying a bill if it doesn't come through the post. Amongst young people uh, in particular, there's a massive issue now with debt because young people are running their affairs virtually entirely on smartphones and tablets. So they have no records, which means they sometimes don't realise that if, if some uh, direct debit's not gone out or something like that, they don't actually realise what's going on. So there are a lot of issues there, but it, there's a more fundamental point, which our campaign is not anti-digital. Our campaign is pro-choice. We believe the consumers should have the right to choose how they own their relationship with service providers such as banks and building societies. And if the consumer wants to stay with paper, they, it shouldn't be difficult for that to happen and they shouldn't be charged for it. And what are you asking companies to do and, and how are they responding? We have a six-point pledge, which basically is on the lines of don't take paper away, don't charge for paper, don't make it difficult to um, get paper, don't say it's paper or online, you can't have both, because over half the consumers we spoke to said they actually like access to both, and then they will choose which they use when. So it's a very simple, very straightforward pledge. So far, the Principality Building Society has signed up to it, and a couple of water companies. But there's no doubt that when you talk to the big companies, you come into this conflict between the marketing departments, who actually recognise that the customer relationship has value 
and that they should make sure the customer trusts the brand. And the finance departments are go, oh, whoopee, look how much money we can save if we stop posting things. Well, surely that's a huge uh, incentive for companies to actually push people online. I mean, if, if you look at, say, airlines now that make you check in online, that make you print your own boarding pass, I mean, they're constantly transferring their costs onto the consumer, which, I mean, you can see why that would be in their interests. Aren't there instances, though, when actually only paper will do? Very much so, particularly in the area of identity, because, of course, we are the only European country without identity cards. And yet, if you print off your your gas bill, your bank statement, it is not a legal document. It's not accepted as a legal document. So we're hearing, for example, from groups like Solicitors for the Elderly, that probate is becoming very, very difficult if you haven't got those paper records. We're hearing from immigration law firms that people are struggling with the Home Office to prove residency. So there's a lot of other issues around it. It's not just managing your affairs, but ultimately it comes back to the right to choose. Thank you very much. That was Judith Donovan of the Keep Me Posted campaign. Now is probably the wrong place to be telling you this, but in this weekend's FT Money, which is also available in print, you can read about which banks, which building societies and which fund supermarkets and stockbroking firms offer the best service to those who want paper statements and telephone dealing as opposed to doing everything online. And if you're online, you can read this and much more on the new Weekend FT app, which allows you to subscribe to the whole of the Weekend paper in glorious Technicolor for just £49 a year. That's around a third of the cost of buying the paper each week. We're always keen to hear your views, too. If you've had good or bad offline experiences of financial services firms, do drop us an email. The address is money at ft.com. And you can write to us, too. The postal address is 1 Southwark Bridge, London, SE19 HL. On to our final item for today. The mis-selling of payment protection insurance has been one of the great financial scandals of our time. Banks have collectively set aside over £20 billion to compensate customers for selling them expensive and often useless insurance. PPI has spawned an entire industry of claims management companies and created huge workload for entities such as the Financial Ombudsman Service, which adjudicates in disputes between consumers and financial services firms. Conventional wisdom has it that the PPI scandal has now peaked, that everybody who could possibly have been missold the product has been contacted and that billions of pounds of compensation have been finally paid out. But not quite. PPI may not be in the news quite as often as it once was, but it certainly isn't over either. James Pickford has more. James, the FOS takes on all kinds of complaints about the financial services industry. What proportion of its uh, caseload is PPI these days? Well, you're right to point out that even though this has been running for several years now, PPI still accounts for 7 out of 10 cases or complaints made to the Ombudsman. And um, the Ombudsman was at pains to point out when it released its its latest six-monthly review uh, this week that this is still by far the, the most complained about product that it's ever had to deal with. And just to put this in some context, the worst product that it had to deal with before this was mortgage endowment uh, policies in the late 80s and 90s. And over the, the entire history of that, uh, again, that, another sorry saga, that generated 300,000 complaints in total. But so far in the history of PPI, the Ombudsman has received over a million. It is receding slightly. It's dropped by 31% uh, in the recent uh, six monthly figures to the end of June. 
But as the Ombudsman said, it remains and it expects it to be a, a substantial complaint in the next two to three years. In terms of the compensation that banks have, have paid, I mean, we know they've set aside, I think it's something like $23 billion, But how much have they actually paid out? How much of this money has gone into um, people's pockets? Well, so far, and, and when we say so far, the clock starts ticking from 2007 when, when this was exposed. Banks have paid out £16 billion. They've had a, a total of 13 million complaints and these have been upheld at the rate of about uh, 70%. But as you say, banks have set aside a total of £23 billion to cope with what they expect to be further claims coming up. And is that it, or could there be even more provisions in the works? Well, banks reckon they've got this about right now in terms of what they expect they'll have to pay, but you've got to remember they've been consistently surprised um, over the course of this saga. And in fact, they got another surprise last week. Uh, because the Financial Conduct Authority decided that banks had rejected too many of the complaints uh, that were made in uh, late 2012 and early 2013 and have demanded that banks reopen two and a half million cases that they had thought were closed. Also, another factor in this is that banks are proactively writing to five million customers who have not complained and the FCA regards these as, as customers who were at high risk of having been missold. They've sent out 3.2 million of these letters, but there are obviously more still they have to send out. There could be further provisions to come. Thanks very much, James. And if you think you have been missold PPI, then you should complain to your bank in the first instance. If they don't resolve the complaint to your satisfaction, then take it to the Financial Ombudsman Service. Don't use a claims management company, as they will take a big chunk of any compensation that you are awarded. There's just time to tell you a little bit more about this weekend's paper. We look at why star manager Neil Woodford sold his shares in HSBC just two months after buying them, while Ken Fisher explains a little-known but very reliable stock market anomaly. With the latest share tips from Investors Chronicle, and Terry Smith explains why he's unlikely to be buying Tesco shares anytime soon. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Joe, James, and our special guest, Judith Donovan. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.